So our reading this morning is taken from the book of Habakkuk. Uh, You'll find it on the screen, but if you wish, you also have Bibles today uh, by the chairs, and it's on page 940. And we're reading uh, verses 1 to 13 of chapter 1, and we're reading verse 1 of chapter 2. So that's Habakkuk beginning from verse 1 of chapter 1. The prophecy that Habakkuk, the prophet, received. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralysed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law unto themselves and promote their own honour. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an evil, swooping to devour. They all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. By building earthen ramps, they capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty people whose own strength is their God. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous, Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, David. Well, let's pray that the Lord would speak to us from his word, shall we? Father God, we thank you for your presence with us this morning. And we pray that you would open our hearts to your word and your word to our hearts. Take what I prepared and make it useful for you. And help help us, Lord, we pray in these times to rely on you. In Jesus' name, amen.
In recent days, the events on the world stage have just been so cataclysmic, uh, so horrific, so dreadful, that it's impossible, really, to get them out of our minds, is it not? And if you're like me, you just find that the images on our screens of people suffering so badly, um, they just invade your thoughts. You don't want them to, but they do. And so as I was thinking and praying about what to talk about today, it seemed to me that to talk about anything other than how we respond to what's going on in Ukraine would be silly because it towers above our everyday life and makes the normal things that we think about um, flee and seem irrelevant. So that's what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about how do we respond to international crises? How do you pray? Well, one thing that scriptures tell us very clearly is we should respond to help on a very practical level. Scriptures tell us in Romans, Paul says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And I think it's fair to say that um, bombing innocent civilians, making millions refugees, that is evil. And we need to respond in practical ways to help. And I'm not going to spend any length of time on that at all, because I'm sure that the majority of us are already committed to doing that. And um, the ways to help financially are, are so easy to find. You've only got to Google relief to Ukraine and you get uh, so many credible, really good options. But I'm going to really choose for us to focus on our interior life and say, well, what's our spiritual response? Can you keep going as a believer at these times? And more than that, actually, could you keep growing at such a challenging time as this? Now, I don't know if you do this or not. I, I don't, but it's a really good practice for those who do. I wonder if any amongst us, and I don't need a show of hands, keep a prayer journal. And um, well done if you do. You can look very happy with yourself for a moment or two. I saw one or two people just nudge, so that's given the game away. Well, if you do keep a prayer journal and we were able to read it, that, that would tell us quite a lot about how you're navigating these days of international conflict. And I think we can say that the scriptures contain a prayer journal written at a time of international conflict and that we can learn from them. And, and that's found in this little book of Habakkuk. Now, the likelihood is that the majority of us uh, haven't actually heard a sermon series on Habakkuk, and we might not even have read it recently, apart from the last four verses. And um, we probably don't know where to find it in the Bible. Well, if you're using these church Bibles, it's page 940. And I would suggest that you do get a Bible open, because what I, I intend to do in the next 20 minutes is give us a guided tour which will help us to navigate this book of Habakkuk and it will help us to grow just like Habakkuk grew during this time of conflict. Let me give you a little bit of the background to what's going on when Habakkuk is living and when he's writing. The year is 605 BC 
And the superpower of that day were the Babylonians, sometimes in scripture also called the Chaldeans. And they crushed all that stood in their way. They were notorious for their brazen cruelty and their ruthlessness. And they overcame the might of the Egyptians in the Battle of Carchemish in 605 BC. And next in line for disaster, it seemed, were the puny, tiny, and pretty insignificant nation of Judah, who were massively threatened by the Babylonian entourage. And the story of Habakkuk, which is written at the same time as Jeremiah is prophesying, is a record of one man's journey through trouble and how he got through. In fact, he does more than get through. He matures and grows up. I'm sure there are many ways of studying this book, but I've chosen just to look at the three prayers that come. And pretty conveniently, they, they, the chapter headings pretty much demarcate where they are. And if we go to the very opening of a book, if you're going to summarize the first prayer, and it's a good way of memorizing where things are in scripture, actually, is to give each chapter a heading. I would say the first prayer could be summarized like this. Don't just stand there, pray something. You know, we sometimes say that, or someone might have said it to you, don't just stand there, say something. Well, God would say to us, don't just stand there, pray something. Even if you think your praying is pretty useless, even if it's nothing more than an overflow of emotion and revulsion and disgust, a rant even, which is pretty much what Habakkuk's first prayer is, at least it's an honest dialogue. At least it's a heart-to-heart. And if you wanted to summarize the prayer itself, it's easily done. The first prayer goes more or less like this. Are you there and do you care? Are you there and do you care? How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you don't listen? Verse 2. Any prayer that begins how long is a sad prayer, a desperate prayer. And it's actually a common prayer in the Old Testament. 19 times in the Psalms alone are prayers containing that line. How long, Lord, will you forget me? Forever? Or how long must I call for help, but you don't listen? I don't know how the departments work in the heavenly places, but the how long department is a long department. Have you heard there's a long queue of people waiting to ask God that question? Have you seen? Do you care? And actually, what Habakkuk has to say gets even stronger. In verse 3, he says, Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Why are you sitting on your hands when in Judah... Verse 3, the law is paralysed and justice never prevails. If you you want a description of a desperate society, that would be it. Where the law is paralysed, you could turn nowhere for an upholding of the law and there's no justice. And that's how Habakkuk sees his life amongst the people of Judah. Well, the first thing that he's got right is that he is at least talking to God. He is at least venting his feelings. And our prayers at this point might not be very pretty, 
We might even live to take them back, but it's better than bottling them up. It's better to be real than to do nothing. And there are going to be times in your life and my life when we can't make head or tail of why God isn't doing more or why what he's doing is so not what we would be doing. And the very first step, it's the very least we can do, is at least to give God the benefit of our opinion, even if it's a rubbish opinion. But it's interesting because by verse 5, Habakkuk has some kind of a beginnings of an answer. God does talk to him, but he more or less says this, you're not going to like my answer to your prayer. I am going to do something, but you're not going to think much of it. Look at verse 5 and 6 of chapter 1. Look at the nations and watch. Be utterly amazed, because I'm going to do something in your days you wouldn't believe, even if I told you. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. Now, I just want to put in a a little caveat here. Um, I'm not saying that God has raised up the Russians like he raised up the Babylonians. And I'm not going to go down that track. That's a horrible way of mangling the Bible, dreadfully. I'm simply conveying what God said to Habakkuk in 605 BC. He's saying, I know these people, the Babylonians. I know how ruthless they are. I know how godless they are. I know how violent they are. And I've raised them up. And the description he gives here of the Babylonians that we're not going to go into, they're painted as, as a graphically horrid group that you would live in dread of. And how does it go down with Habakkuk, this idea that God's raised them up? Well, the answer is very, very badly. In verse 13, he says, well, hang on. I don't think much of that idea. Where's your sense of justice gone? I mean, I know that life in Judah is bad and corrupt, but it's not as bad and corrupt as amongst the Babylonians. So how can you give them priority over us? How can you make them the superpower? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Now, just a moment of reflection before we move on to the second prayer. It's fine to rant, and it's fine to give your emotions to God, but you can't stay in that place forever. Why not? Well, because it's very tiring. And sooner or later, you'll come to the end of your energy, and you'll become repetitious in your prayers. It's a bit like a child throwing a tantrum. Uh, There's never a good time for a child to throw a tantrum, but if you're a parent, even in the middle of the supermarket in front of everyone else, you do know it will blow itself out eventually because you just can't rant forever. And so it's fine to talk to God like this, but, but there's got to be a better way and there will eventually be a gap for God to respond. And helpfully, God gives to Habakkuk a road out of ranting a road out of ranting, and wonderfully, just made for a preacher, the road out of ranting is three points beginning with W. I often wonder how it can be that a work written in Hebrew can translate into a preacher's dream with three points beginning with W, but there you are. And here they are. Watch, write, and wait. Chapter 1, verse 5. Look at the nations and watch. He's told to be on the lookout. And evidently, we find out Habakkuk is obedient because in chapter 2, he says, I will stand at my watch, I will look to see. Write down the revelation and make it plain. That's in chapter 2, verse 2. 
So he's God's saying to Habakkuk, watch, wait while I talk to you and give you a revelation and make sure that you tweet it. Make sure that you put it into a form that people can understand. And then thirdly, wait, chapter 2, verse 3, for the revelation to be fulfilled. Because it will be, but it will be in its own appointed time. And that's not going to be soon. Now, it's so interesting, actually, that in the nature of revelation in Scripture, of prophecy in Scripture, it's very often God's way to speak to his servants, the prophets, and for there to be an immediate application to what their prophecies say, and a long-term relevance too. And that's certainly true of what God says to Habakkuk, even during his prayer. The immediate application is a word of reassurance that the Babylonians will get their comeuppance one day, that God has seen the behaviour of the Babylonians and it won't go unpunished. Verse 12, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Verse 17, the violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. Your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you've shed human blood. You've destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. And this prophecy was actually fulfilled with the fall of Babylon that took place about 66 years after the prophecy was written down in 539 BC. But the long-term, there's a long-term application in what God reveals to Habakkuk in this chapter as well, which are very marvellous for us. And God reveals to Habakkuk two guiding principles that are to be for his people for all time, in good times and in bad times, in times of war and in times of peace, in times when you understand what's going on and in times when you haven't a clue what's going on. These two principles remain fixed and forever. And the first one is this, a revelation about the way of life that pleases God. And that's tucked in verse 4 of chapter 2. The righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Well, we're very familiar with that. that. That's a verse which is quoted in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, and Galatians chapter 3, verse 17, and Hebrews 10, 38. So three times in the New Testament, that actual verse is quoted and says this, the righteous will live by faith. What does that mean? I would put it this way. Trust in God is a lifestyle choice. That's what faith is, trust in God in this context. If you and I decide to trust in God as a lifestyle choice, it's when we do that that we are fulfilling the way of life God wants. By far the best illustration I can think of this uh, is this one, and I think I've used it before and I will use it again because I think it's a good one, which is how a parent teaches their child to walk. Now, if you're a parent, I think you've done this, but even if you weren't a parent and not yet been a parent, your parents did this to you. The child will get to a stage, baby, infant, will get to a stage where instead of crawling around, generally, I think this is right, and those of you who are expert in child development, come and tell me later, but they get to a stage where instead of crawling around on all fours, they sort of grab the shelves and things like that, and they start to want to walk. And you, parent, will, will inevitably have put yourself in front of the child just out of reach. It's a nasty trick, this. Just out of reach, and you'll say, you won't say, here, kitty, kitty, because it's not a cat, it's a child you're talking to, but you might say, you know, I'm sure my parents said, here, Rupert, come on, come on. 
And this little baby Rupert comes towards mummy or daddy or whoever, falteringly, then they grab them when you're about to fall. Now, some of you, who's done that to their children? Come on. Yes, it's not just a Rupert style of parenting. It happens. Now, now the thing is, with, with, with babies, with, with toddlers, we expect them to grow out of it. You know, if, if I see you doing that to a 17-year-old, I'll think there's something gone very wrong with your parenting. You know? And we expect that a child will go independent. We expect that. Here's the thing. God does not expect that. God expects that our lifelong journey with him will be one of learning to trust, learning to trust, learning to trust, over and over and over and over again. That's what it means to live by faith, to live by trust. And the danger for us, the risk for us, and what we do without meaning to, but it just sort of happens, is we declare ourselves, I can stand on my own two feet, thank you. And God says, no, thank you. You've got to trust and lean on me. Okay, let's go to put this into Jesus speak. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. What's he mean? Take my yoke. You know, it's the thing they put on oxen, and it's the thing that yoked you to another oxen. And then Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And that's, you know, that means not easy peasy. It means well-fitting. It means shaped for your shoulders. So Jesus is saying, Rupert, come to me and put my yoke upon you. It's a Rupert-shaped yoke, and we're going to walk together for life. He never says, take it off. We're disciples for life. We're learners for life. We've got to trust him for life. There's never going to be a moment, never going to be a moment where I can say, no, thank you, God, I'm self-sufficient. The moment I do that, I'm not trusting him. Now, as you know, we all claim independence from God. It just is what we do, and we need to be shaken out of it. And sometimes we are shaken out of it, by illness. You most definitely would be shaken out of it in time of famine. We are being shaken out of it in times of wars and tumult. We're being called to trust, aren't we? So actually, it chimes well with what we're doing today on Commitment Sunday. It's quite an adult exercise where we reflect our walk with God and we're saying to him privately before today, I want to review how I'm doing in my proximity to you. I want to make sure that I'm leaning on you and not just leaning on my own skills. And I'm sure you've often heard it. I, I, just because you've heard it often doesn't mean you can discount it. Just look at where you're spending your time. That will reflect what you think is important. Just look at where you're spending your worship. What do you worship? You worship what you talk about most, what you invest in most, what you believe in most. So if you worship Jesus really, you're going to invest in his family, you're going to invest in his projects, you're going to care about them and talk about them. That's why today actually is so important that we've come together to worship. Because we need, we just do acknowledge, I don't need to tell you you're here, but we do acknowledge, we, we depend on each other. We're God's gift to one another. We're God's resource to help each other through tough times and easy times. So in the middle of this, I must move on, but in the middle of this second prayer, 
it's given to Habakkuk to realize there's a way of life that pleases God all the time, and it's a life that leans on him. And then secondly, he's given to see this, but the purpose for life that pleases God. And the purpose for life comes into Habakkuk's mind as he remembers a verse of Isaiah, which is fascinating, Isaiah 11, verse 9. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. What does that mean? It means just as you can't go into the sea and not get wet, there will be a day when you can't travel around the world without finding that everyone you meet knows about the glory of God. It's God's purpose, long-term purpose for his world. The good news of the glory of God will reach every corner of the globe. And that's still true today. That's still a work that we're engaged in. If you want to live with God's purpose at the centre of your life, it's that that you live to be an ambassador for Christ, to spread the good news of what he's done. That's at the heart of why we exist at St. Michael's. I think it's amazing that God has given us this great space in the very heart of London, and we as a church are just committed to it being used so that people of all ages and stages from all over the world could come to meet Jesus Christ. Which is why, actually, and I'm going to mention this just terribly briefly, but why I'm really thrilled that in a few weeks' time, just after Easter, we're going to start a new evening service. And we, we recognise, you know, we are so accessible via Victoria. It's like we're on a major trade route, if you want to see it that way. And there are so many people who haven't a clue who Jesus is that we think it would be great to throw open the doors and say, Lord, we're here for as many people as you want to bring to get to know you personally. And actually, in this evening service, we're going to start a new partnership with Soul Survivor Watford. They're an Anglican church. And they're going to be sending over some worship leaders to help us. It's not a church plant. Um, they have no wish to be planting a church at all. They just said, we're in the business of resourcing churches. And we see lots of churches that are trying to rebuild after COVID and shut down. And we want to help in any way we can. And I just mentioned that in passing, there'll be more details in the weeks to come. But it, it chimes in well here with Commitment Sunday. We're committed to bringing true that promise of God to Habakkuk, that the day will come when the earth will be filled with the glory of God. We play our part in that. Well, let's move to the third prayer. And the third prayer comes from chapter three. What I find encouraging is the situation hasn't changed between chapter two and three. It's still very, very desperate. But Habakkuk's heart has changed. And out of stillness and waiting has come a completely different kind of prayer. It begins as Habakkuk starts to rehearse in his head the things that God has done in the past. That's in verse 2. He says effectively, Lord, I recall the times when you came to the rescue. I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. And I'm asking you to repeat them in our day. God has come to help his people. And in the next few verses, Habakkuk basically rehearses the times that come into his head as he thinks about the exodus as he thinks about when God led his people 
out of slavery into the promised land. He thinks about the plagues, the works of power. He thinks about the parting of the Red Sea. He thinks about Jericho and the walls coming tumbling down. Verse 13, you came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. So what is it that you've got in your memory bank and I've got in my memory bank that can give us hope as we reflect on God's faithfulness in the past? Lots of people are leaning on Psalm 46 and the verse that says he makes wars cease. And he does. He has the most amazing ways of making wars cease in the scriptures. Sometimes he inflicts panic on the enemies. Sometimes he just throws them into confusion. Sometimes he visits them with a plague. There are so many ways God can make wars cease. But I think we have an easier time of it when we try and think of what's in our memory bank than Habakkuk ever had. Because surely we've got the life, death, resurrection of Jesus and the promise of his coming back to fuel us with hope. And we've got his promise, I will never leave you or forsake you. And you can think of every time that Jesus opened his mouth and did anything, that it's the Lord that reigns. In this world you'll have trouble. Fear not, he says, I've overcome the world. I've told you these things, so in me you have, can have peace. That's the God who's still reigning. Out of the silence comes an amazing new song. I was just thinking that I don't suppose there's any other book in the scriptures that I can think of that is more famous for its final few verses than the book of Habakkuk. They are a great paean of praise. They are a dance in the desert. They are a song from the heights that was written in the depths. I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on a nation invading us, says verse 16. And then this famous, famous song. Though the fig tree doesn't bud and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. It's a song, isn't it, that's come out of a furnace of affliction. It's so not, are you sitting comfortably, then I'll begin. It is gold refined in the fire, isn't it? In 1953, a tiny book, just two inches by three inches, was smuggled out of a Siberian labour camp. Four girls there had written prayers on tiny scraps of paper, and they carefully stitched them together, and the book found its way back to Lithuania. And this is one of the prayers. Lord, bless my sleep. The day has closed its eyes. Fatigue closes my eyes. My feelings have dried up. My strength has left me. Lord, I thank you for all your grace of today, for health, strength, and food both that of soul and body, for every good word, for hope for my native tongue that I hear in this strange country. The source of our strength and our hope and our joy is none other than the Lord our Saviour. 
You know, those last verses are so familiar about how God is my strength and made my feet like the feet of a deer that enables me to tread on the heights. I thought it was just worth running past us what Habakkuk doesn't say. He doesn't say, he lines my shoes with lead so that I always sink to the bottom. He says the opposite. His spirit fills me with hope so that I can rise to the top. Well, I hope that this journey through Habakkuk will furnish us with strength and purpose in the days ahead. I hope that we too will just move along that spectrum where instead of just ranting at God, we'll be able to wait, watch, listen and write about God's faithfulness and his purposes. I hope that we'll see that there is a call to us to live out our lives in a different way, trusting in the Lord and trying to please him. And there is a duty put upon us to spread the good news of Jesus Christ and to praise him, come what may. In, in a second, we're going to receive from the Lord's table, if you want to, and that speaks of a far greater commitment that God has for us than we will ever have for him. So in that confidence, let's pray together just for a moment. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we're not the first people to reach out to you flummoxed by what's going on internationally. Thank you for the honesty of Habakkuk and that his prayers, imperfect as they were in some ways, make it into the scriptures. And thank you that you reached out to him and opened his eyes to your greater purposes. And you did put his feet upon a rock. You did enable him to look up to the heights and to sing a new song. And we pray, Lord, that as you look upon us in this Commitment Sunday, you'd find us a faithful people, wanting and willing to walk in your ways. We pray that you'd empower us by your spirit and strengthen us through one another. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.